Church, you can go and grab your Bibles this morning and open up with me, if you would, to the 36th Psalm. Psalm 36. And uh, as you turn to us, bow again for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're, we're so thankful, Lord, for all that we just sang about. That there is now no condemnation now that we dread Jesus and all in Him is ours. Everything we have, Lord, is because of Christ and what He's done. It is, it is His righteousness that we're found in. It is His death that has atoned for our sin. And Lord, all of this is owed to Your great faithfulness. All of this is owed to Your steadfast love. So, Lord, thank You for what You've done for us through Your Son. Thank You, Lord, for speaking to us through Your Word. And, Father, we pray that our ears would be opened, our hearts would be opened to Your voice this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' Again, we're in Psalm 36. Uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, what we've been doing over the past couple of years is we have been, in between our bigger book studies, we've been turning our attention to the Psalms. And so we just a couple of weeks ago finished up the study going through Colossians. And so we turned back the last few weeks to Psalms together. Our plan is we're going to keep going with this little section until we get to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 marks the end of the first book of, of Psalms. And so we're going to go through Psalm 41. But we're in Psalm 36 this morning, and uh, you probably remember that my favorite description of the Psalms comes from the Puritans. The Puritans describe the Psalms as a medicine chest for the soul. I love that description. The Psalms are a medicine chest for the soul. I like it because it's something we can all relate to. Just about every family in here has some kind of a, a medicine chest or a, a medicine cabinet in your home. I've mentioned before that we have this big overflowing plastic bin in our house. It sits up on the top shelf in our closet, and that is our medicine chest. And anything you could need is in that medicine chest. I was sick here a week or two ago and was struggling and couldn't seem to get past it, so I got down that big bin, and I found in it a, a prescription for an antibiotic from 2016 that hadn't been used, and I used that prescription, and it did the trick. But if you have a cough, you can find cough syrup in it. If you have a headache, you can find headache medicine in it. If you have gout, there's gout medication in it. You can find medicine for whatever ails your body in that bin. And that's a good way to think about what the Psalms are. Whatever ails you spiritually, you can find a Psalm that will be the perfect medicine for your soul. You can find a Psalm that will help you pour your heart out to God. You can find a psalm that will help you know how to praise God. So there are, there are psalms for times of suffering. There are psalms for times of celebration. There are psalms for times of betrayal. There are psalms for times of jubilation. You can find a psalm for any situation you're in that will help you express yourself to God. Now, Psalm 36 is a little bit of a tricky psalm to classify. I mentioned psalms of lament and psalms of celebration. Well, the first part of Psalm 36 sounds like a psalm of lament. It sounds like David is, is lamenting over all of the wickedness in the world and the wickedness in our hearts. But all of a sudden you come to verse 5 and this psalm takes a dramatic change. So it's almost like there's two different rhythms to this psalm. I was thinking this week, do you remember the, the hymn we sing sometimes, the resurrection hymn, Up from the Grave Hero? It's going to that hymn where it starts very soft and somber. 
low in the grave, I'm not going to sing it, low in the grave he lay, Jesus our Savior, waiting to come in. It's very somber sounding. And then all of a sudden the music changes and he gets loud and jubilant up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. That's what this song feels like. So the first four verses are uh, sort of minor keys. It's very somber. David is, is lamenting the, the grimness and the darkness of sin. And then you get to verse Five and it changes into this this psalm of celebration about the love of God. Very much like we started with this Psalm 30, uh, 136. It's a celebration of God's steadfast love for His people. So let's read it together. If your Bible is open to Psalm 36, we'll read through the psalm in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. This is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes... An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises, devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Here comes the transition. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down. And are not able to rise. I think I've told you before a few years ago. Uh, a friend of mine and I went on a trip out to uh, Yosemite National Park. We were going out to do a couple of these big, long hikes that we wanted to do for a long time together. And so we flew out to Sacramento. And then we drove over and we were staying at a place about an hour outside of, of Yosemite. And so the first morning we were getting up, we were going to drive into the park. And we were going to do the, the biggest, the longest hike we had planned top of half on the back it's going to be 18 or 20 miles and so we were getting into the park that morning really early so we left where we were staying before sunrise we entered into Yosemite nobody was there it was pitch black we were probably an hour and a half before the sun came up when we got there and so our first experience in the park we're driving down the main road in Yosemite National Park in pitch black darkness all we could see was whatever was was right in front of the headlights of the car. We couldn't see the scenery, we couldn't see the trees. There was nothing impressive to look at on the trip in. Okay, so we got parked, we did the hike, and then we came back down at the end of the day and we made that same drive back through that main road in Yosemite Valley. And it was absolutely stunning. Probably the most picturesque place I've ever been. It's all these sheer rock walls and towering mountains and waterfalls all over the place. Now that same place 
had been completely unimpressive just a few hours earlier. So, so what changed from the first drive-thru to the second drive-thru? And the answer is what changed is light. Light changed everything. That, that's the picture we're getting in this song. So David's going to begin it by describing, um, you might call it the path of spiritual darkness. This is what life looks like. The first four verses is what life looks like in darkness. And then beginning in verse 5, David describes what happens when the lights come on. And what happens when the lights come on is you all of a sudden realize there are these, these towering mountains of God's love and these deep rivers of God's goodness that you didn't even know were there before. So David's going to describe the path of darkness and then the path of light. So here's the first point. Number one, two very broad headings. Number one, there's a description of life in the dark. Um, probably one of the most enduring theology books over the last 500 years is John Calvin's The Institutes of Christian Religion. In the very beginning of that book, Calvin says that, that true, all true wisdom consists of two parts. In other words, there are two planks that underlie all true claims of wisdom. And he says those two parts of true wisdom are the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. In other words, all true wisdom has to begin with knowing God for who He is, but that's not all. From there, true wisdom entails knowing ourselves for who we really are. And so what He's doing in Psalm 36 is the second half, He's telling us who God is. But the first four verses, He's reminding us of who we are. So notice that first phrase, how he starts this description. He says, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. Now that, that's a tricky phrase to translate. The New King James words it, that this is an oracle in David's heart about the transgression of the wicked. That word oracle in the Bible is usually used in connection with the word of prophecy. So it's like, it's being translated that David has received a revelation from God about what's going on in the hearts of the wicked. And that's a, that's a legitimate way to translate it. But that's not how most translations word it. I don't know what translation you're looking at, but, but most translations word it not that this is a revelation David received about the wicked. But most translations word it that this is a word spoken into the hearts of the wicked. It's it's the voice of sin speaking to the wicked. Here's the way the ESV translates it, for instance. It words it, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And I think that's a better description. What it's saying is that David here is, is sort of drilling down to the core of the human problem. And the core of your problem, no matter what you've been told, the core of your problem is not that you were raised in a dysfunctional family. We all were. The core of your problem is not that you were bullied when you were in elementary school. David is saying the core of our problems is we have sinful hearts. Sin's voice resonates in our hearts. And you know when you see that word heart in the Hebrew, heart is not just what you feel with in the Bible. Your heart is like the nerve center of your life. Your heart is the hard drive that runs everything else in your life. 
It, your heart is what you think with and plan with and choose with and feel with. And David is saying our biggest problem is the voice of wickedness speaks deeply to us in our hearts. And our ear is tuned to it. And so, so it's like we all have this prophet named Sin that is speaking into our hearts from the minute that we enter this world and our ears are tuned into it. So, so we have ears, spiritual ears, that are deaf to the voice of God. We don't naturally hear God. We're deaf to God. But we have spiritual ears that are acutely tuned into the voice of sin. So just like, just like the serpent kissed out that first lie in the Garden of Eden, it's like the voice of sin still hisses in our hearts. And we listen. Sin knows how to play the tunes that we like to hear. So, so the voice of God is not the loudest voice in our hearts. This is how we come into this world. This is all of us apart from God's saving grace. The, the voice of God is not the loudest voice. It's the voice of rebellion that's the loudest voice. We have this call that's ringing out in our heart. It's this call of transgression. This call of rebellion against God. So how does that voice of rebellion show up in our lives? Here's the first sort of overarching result of that. David says, there is no fear of God before his eyes. You'll remember the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That the starting place of real wisdom is you have to see God for who he is and know God for who he is. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that a good way to think about the fear of the Lord is is the connection with that Copernican revolution. You remember talking about that? that? That hundreds of years ago, everybody was convinced that the earth is at the center of the universe. They thought everything else in this universe orbited and revolved around the earth. And the Copernican revolution was when they realized that it's the opposite of that. It's not the earth that's at the center with the sun revolving around us. It's the sun that's at the center and everything else orbits around it. Well, Spiritually speaking, the Copernican Revolution is the fear of God. It's when, you, it's when you realize, listen, you're not at the center of the universe. God is. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for God. You come to see God for who He is. And everything in your life is set in orbit around God. So that you fear Him and you love Him and you reverence Him and you worship Him. But that doesn't come naturally. Our default setting is we ignore God. Our default setting is there's no fear of God. Our default setting is we live as if God's not there and we manage to go through life as if we'll never stand before God and we'll never give an account to God. There's no fear of God. This is David's description of mankind apart from God's saving grace. Well, verses 2 through 4, what he does is he describes... The sort of life that cascades out of a heart where there's no fear of God. So if there's no fear of God in my heart, what does that then look like? What does that translate to in my life? Verse 2. David says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. This is what happens when there's no fear of God. It's been wisely said, I think, that, that he who makes little of God will make much of himself. That's what David is describing. There's no fear of God. So if, if in your mind God seems very small and very insignificant, 
then the counter to that will be that in your mind you will seem very large and very significant. So the person in spiritual darkness, David says, flatters himself. You know what flattery is? I think one of my favorite descriptions of flattery is um, gossip is when you say behind somebody's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is when you say to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. So it's when you, you make compliments to somebody that you don't mean. You're just trying to puff them up. You're trying to stroke their ego. You're building them up with words that aren't true. And David is saying one of the things that we can do in our sinful hearts is we flatter ourselves. You and I are experts at convincing ourselves that we are far better than we actually are. You and I are experts at stroking our own egos. In fact, the way David says it here is that we flatter ourselves particularly when it comes to our iniquity. Do you know what he means by that? That we tell ourselves lies and convince ourselves that our sin isn't nearly as bad as it really is. Right? That, month, that, that company has plenty of money. Me stealing a little bit of it is not hurting anybody. I love this person that I'm dating. We're going to get married eventually anyway, so sleeping together is not that big of a deal. I, I can worship God in the deer stand just as well as I can worship God in some kind of worship service in a church. I mean, we are experts. We are experts at convincing ourselves that our sins don't matter that much. But even in convincing ourselves that if, if it's a sin at all, God surely is not going to care about it. It's not going to matter that much to God. Here's how far we go in our flatter. We can even convince ourselves that what we're doing isn't even sin. It's actually good. Don't, don't you see this sort of over-the-top flattery all the time in our world today? Where we're told, you know what? The most important thing in life is you have to be true to you. Authenticity is the only thing that really matters. So if what you feel in your heart is, is same-sex attraction, then you have to pursue that. Because that's the only way that you can ever be authentic. So that's not sin. That's actually good. That's not something you did. That's something you should celebrate. You see what that is? That is mankind in the depth of our depravity figuring out ways to flatter ourselves. Figuring out ways to convince ourselves that what we're doing is not sin at all. It doesn't really even matter all that much. That's what David says lies at the heart of a heart that does not fear God. Let me just ask you this question before we go to the next part. Maybe a good way to evaluate this in your own life is this. How do you respond to your own sin? Or maybe I should say it this way. Does your sin scare you? Like when you look at the sin in your life, does it bother you? Does it strike fear into your heart? Do you recognize the seriousness of it? Do you recognize the, the, the wickedness of it in the eyes of God? Or are you in a part in your life where you have so flattered yourselves You've convinced yourself that this sin you're living is, isn't even that big of a deal. Do you see what David's saying that is? That that is the result of a heart that has left the fear of God. So it flatters itself. Well, what's going on in the heart will eventually come out of the mouth. So look at verse, th verse 3. David says, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise. And to do good. So he's saying the speech of this person is marked by deception. 
So, so they not only lie to themselves, they lie to the people around them. The, the truth, in other words, becomes uh, malleable. You can massage the truth and reshape the truth to serve your purposes. So David says they cease to be wise and to do good. They don't even know what the path of wisdom looks like anymore. This is where we are in our sin. So, so foolishness isn't just something that we do. Foolishness is who we are apart from God. Then verse 4, it says, He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Do you remember how Psalm 1 describes the blessed man as the man who meditates on the law of the Lord? It's like the man who really knows the Lord and has a fear of the Lord. His mind regularly mulls over the goodness of God, the character of God, the purposes of God, the ways of God, the commands of God. But you see how this is the opposite of that? David says that the person who is in spiritual darkness lies in bed at night dreaming of ways that they can continue in rebellion. The person in spiritual darkness lies in bed at night scheming of ways that he or she can continue to kick against his creator. So the question here would be, what, what do you think about when you don't have anything else to think about? In those moments when there's nothing else demanding your attention, and your mind is free to wonder wherever it wants to wonder, where do you find your mind consistently going? For the person who's in spiritual darkness, their mind constantly drifts towards sin, constantly, their thoughts constantly pull toward rebellion. Because this is the picture of spiritual darkness. This is, this is how we enter the world. This is what we all are apart from the saving grace of God. Alright, here's the second part. Number two, I want to say a description of life in the light. Pick up in verse 5. David continues in verse 5. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. Do you see what an abrupt transition that is? If you covered the first four verses with your hand and just started reading in verse 5, that would seem like a complete enough song. Verse 4, in some ways, the first four verses, in some ways, don't even feel like they fit with the rest of it. But you get the contrast that David's making. It's sort of surprising. You, you would think maybe the first four verses he's going to describe the wicked. And then verse 5 he's going to start describing the righteous. That's not what he does. He doesn't set up a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. He sets up a contrast between the wicked and the Lord. So he, he doesn't describe those who are outside of the faith and then describe those who are inside of the faith. He describes those who are outside of the faith. And then he describes the object of our faith. Because when the spiritual lights come on, this is what you see. You become captivated with God. And what David's doing in these verses is he wants us to see God for who he is. So he uses the loftiest language at his disposal. It's very much like the song, uh, the hymn that we sang earlier. Right? Could we with ink the ocean fit? Were the skies a parchment made, where every stalk on earth would will, every man is by trade, to write the law of God above would drain the oceans, right? You get that 
over-the-top imagery. That's what David's giving here. He is reaching to the farthest extent of expression to describe God. Particularly, he's, he's describing God's character at large, but in particular, David is wanting to drill that into God's love for his people. That's, that's the highlight of these verses, is David is wanting to draw our attention to God's steadfast love. He wants us to see that God's love reaches from the heavens to the earth, and it stands like the mountains, and it flows to the depth of the seas. He wants us to stand in awe of this God. This is so important. So David doesn't give the first four verses and then go, okay, verse five, so don't live that way. Okay, that's bad stuff. Don't do any of that. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and stop doing all of that stuff. That's, that's not what David does at all. He is trying to help us delight the Lord. It's like David saying to us, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you see who your God is? Be satisfied in Him because we do all those things in the first four verses when we're not satisfied in the Lord. So David wants us to see who the Lord is. So he starts by saying, Your mercy, O Lord, O Yahweh, is in the heavens. You're, you're familiar with that word mercy if you've been here in our study of the Psalms. Because it's that word that comes up over and over and over and over again in the Psalter. It's that Hebrew word, hesed. It's the word for God's covenant love. It's the word that translators struggle so much with knowing how to translate. That's why it's translated steadfast love. It's translated mercy. It's translated loving kindness. But this is not just an emotional, sentimental love. But the love that's being described here is God's loyal love. It's love with super glue on it. This is God's love for His people that is anchored by His promises. It's the loving devotion by which God binds Himself to His people. And David says, Your mercy, your steadfast love is in the heavens. Remember now, in David's day, they had no way of reaching the heavens. They had no airplanes, no space shuttles, no helicopters. So when David says God's love is in the heavens, David is saying the heights of God's love are unreachable. It's measureless, it's boundless, it's overwhelming. And what's stunning to think about is as, as lofty as David, as deep as David is describing God's love, we see God's love even clearer than David could have ever dreamed of. You and I understand something of the love of God in a way that David didn't. On this side of the cross, we've seen, now I'll give you a couple of uh, verses, New Testament verses to illustrate this. Think of Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us. So we've seen the love demonstrated. How? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we've seen the supreme demonstration of God's covenant love. Here's, here's how deeply loyal. Here's how committed God's love is to His people. God sent His own eternal Son to die on the cross to secure our salvation. He sent His own eternal Son to suffer in our place to rescue us from our sin. And I should say, the reason for that is... Our sin stands as this huge barrier between us and God. I know, I know our self-flattery tries to convince us 
then our sin's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter that much to me, so surely it doesn't matter that much to God. But the Bible's going to say our sin separates us from God. It's a barrier between us and God. Because sin isn't just a... When we sin, we're not just breaking some ambiguous list of rules. Every sin we commit is a direct affront to God. We're breaking God's law, which is a reflection of God's character. Every time I sin, I am basically looking at God and saying, Hey, put out. I don't need your advice and I don't want your opinions. I'm going to live how I want to live. So, so then what does sin deserve? This is part of the catechism we teach our kids, right? What does every sin deserve? And the answer is the wrath and curse of God. That's what sin deserves. Because of my sin, I deserve the full fury of God's wrath to be poured out on me. And because of my sin, I should spend eternity hanging, suffering under the curse of God. The Romans 5 eight is saying God demonstrated this covenant, steadfast, loyal love by sending His Son to hang on the cross and take the wrath that we deserve. By sending His Son to hang on the cross where He hung under the curse of God in our place. So that for everyone who looks to Him in faith, we don't stand condemned. That's one New Testament picture of this steadfast love. Second, think of Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, where Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, Made us alive together with Christ. Paul says this is a great love. Do you know what this great love does? Paul says we were dead in our trespasses. What does it mean that we were dead? It means we have hearts that were dead to God. Our hearts were very much alive to sin. Very much dead to God. We were, we were living, walking in the darkness, convinced that we saw everything perfectly clearly. We thought our vision was 2020, when in fact we were actually blind. And Paul says, here's how great God's love is. When you and I were blind, God made us alive. He, he opened our spiritual eyes so that we saw Jesus for who He is and we believed. He took out the heart of soul. And gave us a heart of flesh so that for the first time in our lives, we loved Jesus and we wanted to worship Jesus. Listen, church, if you have any sort of spiritual appetite in your heart at all, if you have a heart that clings in faith to Jesus, if you, if you hunger to know Jesus more, that is not, it is not because you're so smart. It's not because you're so intuitive. It's because God and His great love made you alive. Here's the third thing. We won't read the whole chapter, but think of Romans chapter 8. Romans, we can talk about lots in Romans 8. But Romans 8 is a good reminder of how um, sticky God's love is. How God's love toward His people, it accomplishes its purposes to the end. There's those verses, everybody knows Romans 8, 28. But there's those verses right after that, Romans 8, 29 and 30. It's called the, the golden chain of salvation. You're familiar with it. But just listen to these two verses. Paul says, Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, 
Daisy also called, and whom he called, Daisy also justified, and whom he justified, Daisy also glorified. You get those, you get those five words for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And what does it all start with? Those whom he foreknew. What does that mean? What does it mean to be foreknown by God? Does that mean that these are people that God was aware of? He knew that they were out there? No, God's omniscient. He knows everybody. Does this mean that God foresaw? That he, he looked down the corridors of time and saw decisions we would make. And then he kind of ran back and made his decision. Now listen, every time the word know is used in the Bible, talking about God knowing people or talking about people knowing each other, it is always a relationship. Always. It, it, a good example in the, in the Old Testament would be the Bible talks about Adam knowing his wife. But what does it mean that Adam knew Eve? Does it mean he was aware of her? Or that he foresaw decisions? That she, no, it means that Adam knew her relationally. He knew her intimately. The opposite of that would be, think of Jesus, where he gives that terrible final judgment scene. And there are all these people before Jesus uh, bragging on all the works that they have done. And what does Jesus say to those people? Apart from me, I never knew you. What does it mean that he never knew them? Does that mean he didn't know they existed? Does that mean he didn't know decisions that they would make? No, he knows all of that. He knows every decision. He knows every person. When he says, I never knew you, what it means is he didn't know them relationally. There was no love relationship between Jesus and those people. When the word love is used in the Bible, talking about people or God and people, it's always a relationship word. So when Paul starts this by saying, for those whom he foreknew, that's a word that means for love. This is the word that leads all of this. So there are these people who God placed his love on before the world began. This is that covenant love, that steadfast love. And what's the result of that? Those whom he foreknew, for love, he predestined, he, he secured their destiny in advance. And those whom he predestined, he called, that means in time, he spoke and called them to life. Just like Jesus stepped to the tomb of Lazarus and said, come forth. That's what Jesus does in the hearts of those whom he foreknew. He steps to our dead hearts and says, come forth. And when we believe, we are justified. That's the next word Paul uses in Romans 8. That means through faith in Jesus, which God ignites in our hearts, we believe that God did declares us to be righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus. And then he says, we'll be glorified. We'll spend eternity with God. But you see what all of that great sequence starts with? It starts with being foreloved. Right? This, is, this is the steadfast love of God. I gave you that illustration from that hymn a few weeks ago. This is that love that will not let me go. This is that sticky love of God that he puts on his people. And it's this love that secures the salvation of his people from beginning to the end. And David says, God's love reaches to the heavens. Then the next phrase, we'll go a little faster. He says, his faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Faithfulness is talking about the trustworthiness of God. God's love doesn't run hot and cold. It's not hit or miss. 
right? So you have those times in your life as a Christian where you think, surely, surely my sin has scared God off. Surely my sin has run God away. And David is reminding us in these verses, God's love is steadfast and God is faithful. And then he says, his righteousness is like a great mountain. It's towering. It's unshakable. And his judgments, his justice, his decisions are a great deep. He's, he's emphasizing there the, uh, the profundity of God's ways and God's plans and God's purposes. God's ways are so deep that we can never get to the bottom of it. And David says, he preserves man and beast. Church, you realize every living thing lives because of God. Birds fly and fish swim and deer eat and babies are born because of God's great goodness. It's overwhelming. It is high like the mountains. It's deep like the rivers. But, but David doesn't want to stop. He's not content to leave this talk about God's steadfast love there. So he picks up in verse 7. How precious is your loving kindness. That's the same word that we just saw up in verse 5 that was translated mercy. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. See, what David's transitioning to here is he, the point of this is not that we would just stand back in awe of God's love. That we would write great songs and write theology books. What David's wanting to say now is, no, no, no. You can experience this love. And he wants us to see first that this love shelters us. David uses this image in verse 7 of a mama bird spreading her wings out over her chicks. That they run underneath the wings of their mother for safety. And David's saying, that's what we have in God. We run into God's steadfast love. That's where we find shelter. Think of the hymn we sing. Now why this fear? There's that line in it that says, uh, No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by His saving grace and sprinkled in His blood. But we're sheltered in this steadfast love of God. Sheltered from guilt and shame and judgment. We find shelter in the storms of life. We find, we find protection from our enemies. But it's not just shelter that we find here. Look at verse 8. David says, they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. We're not only sheltered, we're also satisfied. David pictures us in verse 8 as if we're the guests who have been invited into God's house. And he says, we're satisfied with his fullness. That, that word fullness there is the word fatness. And it's describing a host who is laying out the finest, richest food on the table for his guests. He's laid out the fatness. The fat part of the animal was considered the best part of the animal. So David is just describing the, the, the lavishness, the richness of God's love. He spreads out this feast of his steadfast love in front of us. It makes you think of Psalm 23, right? The first half of Psalm 23 is what we think of. That describes the Lord as our shepherd and we're his sheep. But you know, the second half of Psalm 23 describes the Lord as the host and we're his beloved guest. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. My cup 
runs over. This, this is the God who in his steadfast loves spreads out a feast for his people. That's a feast in the presence of our enemies. How can we eat a feast with our enemies glaring at us? The answer is we can because we're sitting at the Lord's table. When you went to someone's home for a meal in the ancient world, they were taking responsibility for you. The host uh, ensured the security of all of his guests. So we enjoy this feast because we sit at the Lord's table. And you see what a gracious host the Lord is in Psalm 23? He anoints our heads with oil. That's over the top. It was customary in this world. If guests came to your house, you would wash their feet. Because you know you would, you would eat a meal at a low table, reclined on your side, with your feet kind of stuck out to the side. And nobody wants to eat a meal with somebody's nasty feet right, down, right, right next to their head. So the normal thing you would do is you would just make sure everybody had clean feet when they came in. But a guest, excuse me, a host who was just over-the-top generous might get down a bottle of oil. This would be olive oil mixed with perfumes and spices. Very expensive. And he might break that bottle open. And he might anoint the heads of his guests. Now remember, this is a day where you're not taking a full body bath all that often. So to be at a party where everybody there has been anointed with this good smelling oil. It's just the mark of a host who is lavishes, lavishes his guests with kindness and goodness and affection. He is not stingy. That's that last phrase in Psalm 23. My cup runs over. He doesn't, he doesn't, for his people, he doesn't pour the cup halfway full. It fills, it's filled to the brim. That's what David's describing. We enjoy the fatness of sitting at the Lord's table. He even uses that phrase at the end of verse 8. He gives us drink from the river of his pleasures. That word pleasures there is the, the Hebrew word Eden. He gives us to drink from the rivers of Eden. It's hearkening back to the Garden of Eden. When God met all the needs of his people. And they experienced the fullness of God's presence. And David's saying that that's what God gives his people now. God's steadfast love is like the rivers of Eden that we drink from. And our hearts are satisfied. In verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light... We see light. You get my verse, that first part of verse 9 is important. We just said God fills our cup to the brim. But now David's saying, no, no, God's, but God's steadfast love isn't just like a filled cup. God's steadfast love is like a fountain. Fountain's better than a cup. He's saying there's no end to it. It's bottomless. You don't, you don't have to ration God's love because you might run out. There's no end to it. And David says, in your light, we see light. We said earlier the man's problem is we are trapped in death. And darkness, right? We stumble in darkness, struggling to find direction, struggling to find purpose, struggling to find meaning. David is saying God is the source of life. God is the source of light. And it's in his light we see light. This is, this is what underlies that C.S. Lewis quote that I've given you a hundred times over the years. It's my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. You'll put it on the board, I think. But it's where C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that line. You know the sun has risen, not only because you can walk outside and see the sun. You know the sun, you don't ever have to look at the sun. You know the sun has risen because you walk outside and you can see everything else because of the sun's light. And Lewis is saying, that's the way Christianity works. Not only have we seen Jesus for who he is, 
But now, in light of our relationship with Jesus, we see everything else in a new light. Because of our relationship with Jesus, the lights have been turned on everywhere. We see marriage in a new light. And we see parenting in a new light. And we see work in a new light. And we see money in a new light. And we see morality in a new light. We see everything in this new light. In His light, we see light. And then this praise spills over into a prayer. The last three verses and we'll wrap up. He says, Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me. And let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. They're the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. So the last three verses go from praise to petition. And David prays that God's covenant love will continue toward his people. Let it go on and on and on. Lord, we didn't just need your steadfast love yesterday. We didn't just need it today. We need it tomorrow and we need it the next day and we need it the next day. And Lord, it's in this steadfast love we pray you protect us from the people that were just described in verses 1 through 4. Let not the foot of pride trample us down and let not the hand of the wicked drive us away from your presence. And then verse 12 is a sort of it has a prophetic flavor to it where David is looking to what's coming for the wicked. David is saying they're going to be cast down and never rise again. But God's judgment does come against those who reject him. It's going to be final. It's going to be certain. And it's going to be irreversible. So this is a good psalm for us to look at as we're going into the new year. Which one of these paths are you on? Are you living a, a self-centered life with no fear of God? Are you living the sort of life where you have managed in your mind to justify all of the sin in your life? Where you have managed in your mind to justify all the ways you're living that are clearly in odds with God's law, but you've managed to flatter yourself into thinking it's not that big of a deal. Or are you living in this ocean of God's steadfast love? David wants us to see that God's love isn't just there for us to marvel at. It's there for us to experience. We drink of the rivers of His pleasure. And we stand in His light. We taste and see that the Lord is good. And we experience all of that. All of that through faith. And we see all of that put on display for us at the cross of Christ. And it's there in Him that we look. We trust in Him. And we commune with Him. And we pursue Him. And we fellowship with Him. So that we say with David in this psalm, how precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. How precious. Let's bow together for prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord in your seat. And thank God for His steadfast love. Thank God that our hope is not on the resiliency of our love for Him, but it is based on the resiliency of His love for us. It's God's love for us demonstrated in Christ that our lives are anchored to, that we have put our hope in. And maybe that's not even true for you. Maybe, maybe the first four verses typify your life. Maybe you live your life with a little fault to God. You're stumbling in the darkness. You're justifying your sin. Well, this service this morning is God's mercy toward you. This, this service this morning 
is God putting his finger on your darkness and your death. And verse 12, the coming judgment. And it's a call to you to repent. To turn away from that. To call out to God for mercy. To look to the cross where Christ was sacrificed to pay our sin debt. So that through him sinners like us can be reconciled to God. To call out to him for mercy. Christian, make it your prayer that, that we would enter this next year clinging. Clinging to the love of God that David's describing in this verse. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray in your seat. And then I'll come close this.